0: This morning's sermon is entitled, Worship the King. This morning we'll read out of Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me." And if any man say otherwise unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king cometh unto thee, Meek, and sitting on a donkey, and a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strew them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to jerusalem all the city was moved saying who is this and the multitude said this is jesus the prophet of nazareth of galilee amen
1: our father we we pray for faith today Uh, we pray that we would be in awe of your mercies towards us as we look back on this most important week of the most important person who ever lived as we begin our services of holy week lord i pray that we would remember that this is truth for all of life and for eternal life we pray that you'd be glorified to give us understanding and with our hearts of worship as we come to your word this morning in jesus name amen the scholar new testament scholar theologian, Andreas Kostenberger, to paraphrase him. He said, Holy Week is the most important week in the life of the most important person who ever lived. And uh, we can talk about this rightly, pastors, theologians, you can talk about that in that way, in one sense, because the last week of Christ's life takes up the vast majority of any history that we know about Jesus. This last week, what we might call the Holy Week narrative, takes up two-fifths or almost 40% of everything that we know about Jesus' life. The Gospels, the four Gospels, are the only witness, eyewitness accounts that we have of the life of Jesus while he's on the earth. And in those... This week contains 40% of his entire, almost 40% of his entire 33 years of his life. Now when you know that and then you see what the New Testament, the rest of the epistles and what the rest of the New Testament focuses in on, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, you see what allusions and what prophecies there are in the Old Testament You realize that this is central to the revelation that God has given to us, what is boiling down to this last week of Jesus' life. That's not to say the rest of his life doesn't matter, not by any means. We're not saved except according to his perfection, his righteousness, his sinlessness. But when we come to this week, this last week of Jesus' life, indeed beginning on Palm Sunday, as we call it, we are coming to something that Scripture keys in on of most importance. Today is Palm Sunday. that's a name that we've given it. We've also called it trium- the triumphal entry of Jesus, because the Palm Sunday, what happens here, when, as we've given it this name, Palm Sunday, people are laying down branches in front of Jesus. We find that they're palm branches in John chapter 12, verse 13. But we also call it the triumphal entry, and yet that terminology, when you get into the scriptures themselves, sometimes is baffling. Have you ever thought deeply about why we call this the triumphal entry of Christ? That's really the topic of what I have to deal with this morning. One doesn't have to read much regarding what is happening in Jerusalem, and surrounding the narratives of Jesus' entry into it, to be baffled, perhaps, by that titled The Triumphal Entry. Looking back into Jesus' life, we know that he did indeed triumph over the temptation of Satan when he was in the wilderness. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. Those who were blind got their sight back, and those who were deaf were able to hear. The mute were able to speak, and even the dead were raised during Jesus' earthly ministry. To say that he was a success in his ministry up to this point is absolutely true. To say he is triumphant might be a stretch. We think of triumphant as regarding somebody who has won a great victory, somebody who has won. And what we see surrounding the narrative of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem does not seem like the triumphalism that we would expect of a victor in battle, or a victor in war, or politics. First, Jesus has seemingly fought and overcome no enemies at this point in the final analysis. When you come to this text, he's not a military general coming into Jerusalem like David was, And the crowds singing out, look at all the 10,000 he's He's slown. Sloan Sloan sounds like someplace you go if you you need a drink, right? (laughs) That he slew. This is not what we see in Jesus' life up to this point. There's no such triumphing over enemies. There's no such battles. If anything, the battle is still going on in this narrative. Second, There's no shortage of confusion. And this is where the battle is seemingly playing out in the narrative. There's no shortage of confusion or disagreement or even enemies at this point in Jesus' life. He still has all of these things going on surrounding him and the people that are around him. Even the crowd. One moment they're screaming out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they even say, Peace! Peace! in heaven and glory in the highest in luke's record of it and the next we read jesus's lament after luke records those words when he drew near to jerusalem he saw the city and he wept over it and here's what he said would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace they're crying out peace and Jesus is weeping that they don't know what things make for peace. He's saying that they don't even know what they're praising him for. Why? He says because now they are hidden from your eyes. And they, then he laments because he knows that a time of their destruction is at hand In just a matter of less than 40 years, the destruction of Jerusalem will come to pass. And many of these people that are screaming and that are praising God for peace, who don't have peace, will not only not see peace, but they will see some of the most devastating means of destruction and terror and torture and horror that came to Jerusalem in 70 AD by the hands of the Romans that they could have ever imagined and would have never imagined. And it's coming. John tells us that many of the people were there because they had been told that Jesus raised Lazarus to life in John 12, 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign, namely raising Lazarus from the dead. But even after revealing himself in this way, in, in his messiahship, in the truthfulness of his ministry and who he was, he reveals himself to those Greeks who were seeking after him. And this is what we, we read after he reveals himself to them. So the crowd answered him in this way, we have heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? So at least they understood by Jesus' words that he was meaning to leave them. How can you mean to tell us that you're the Messiah and at the same time that you're going to leave us? We we hear from the law that you're going to remain forever. There's confusion in this crowd of people. Who is this Son of Man, they say. As John records in 1234, the people's unbelief was in part due to their confusion regarding how the Messiah must indeed triumph. They did not understand that he came to give them peace with God first, before peace with their enemies of this earth. Not just for them either, but also for the Gentiles by being lifted up to die. Rather, they and even the disciples at this time, meaning the crowds who were singing his praises and crying out hosanna and saying blessed is the king of israel did not understand what sort of king he was to be what sort of kingdom he was establishing at this time and what it looked like they were under the impression that the messiah would come into jerusalem triumphant because he would seat himself on David's throne the son of David as they're crying out the son of David the king of Israel but this king of Israel would put down the enemies of Israel the Romans would have no chance against this king the world would have to bow under his rod in Psalm 22 it talks about this king being the one that they should kiss lest he be angry And that's what they expect of this king, whom they are crying out and worship towards. That he would cast down their enemies and begin gathering in the scattered tribes of Israel throughout the world to bring them back into the land, to establish the great kingdom promised to their forefathers and to David. And they got... The timeline of God wrong, and they saw Jesus in the wrong, through the wrong lenses. These wrong views of Jesus, this confusion of his kingship at the time, the confusion of the peace that he was going to bring in his triumph, was deemed, according to John, as unbelief. John twelve thirty six. when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still, not, they still did not believe, that is, trust him. They didn't know who he was. But this is in accordance with the report that Isaiah the prophet spoke of, 700 years before in Isaiah chapter 53 recorded again in John 12:38 Lord who has believed what he had heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord the strength of his salvation his saving revelation to whom has it been revealed and evidently that means not to these people present It's remarkable it's not just the crowd that are confused, it's the Jewish leadership that are in unbelief and indeed hostility towards Jesus at this time. The Pharisees and most of the leaders of Israel were not just frustrated at the crowd's language and praise. Even in the days surrounding this event, they were plotting Jesus's death in John 11:53, 53. Up to that point, after Lazarus was raised, By that time, they were plotting how to put Jesus to death, and they were trying to indeed silence any praise that came to him as the fulfillment of what Zechariah had said in chapter 9, verse 9 of that prophecy. Indeed, the actions of Christ following his entrance into Jerusalem itself seemed almost hostile. He comes and he curses a fig tree, which was a sign of blessing in Israel. If you go into the Old Testament and you read what happens to the fig tree in times of judgment, there's no fruit on the fig tree. Whether it's to Gentiles that the judgment comes or to Israel that the judgment comes, there's no fruit on the fig tree, and that's a sign of God's judgment. Jesus comes after he enters Jerusalem. There's a fig tree there with its leaves and bloom, but it's not this time of fruiting, and Jesus comes to it and curses it, and the fig tree withers. Seems like this is a sign of judgment. We also know that he comes to the temple, and he cleanses it, which also was an abrupt uh, uh, offense to those who were living in Israel at the time. What is this man doing? And they start asking, where do you get your authority from? He's seemingly hostile. He's not going to the throne to throw down uh, Israel's enemy. He seems like he's cleansing them from within. And so there seems to be a sort of hostility which added to this reaction. Of course, there wasn't hostility in either one of these signs. There was truth. There was righteousness. There was holiness. There was the revealing of the true nature of God and his Messiah. Even the disciples were reading their record. They're confused at this time. Peter summarizes, I think, well the confusion of all of the disciples when he asks the Lord after Jesus is explicitly telling them what he is about to do, and he says, Lord, where are you going? Where where do you mean you're going to the cross? We know later Jesus tells them and, and, and Peter says, no, far be it from you to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't even have a taste of the flavor of the things of heavenliness. Peter is confused. The disciples are confused even at this time, even as Jesus is explaining that he is soon to go to the cross. But may I say to you this morning that this indeed is triumphal, this entry of Christ. Both John, the Apostle John, and Matthew record something that is so profound as they see it unfold after the fact. And I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. They both say that what is happening here is in fulfillment of a prophecy that the prophet Zechariah gave In chapter 9, verse 9, of a restoration prophecy. In that text, he he says this. He he tells Jerusalem to do two things. Rejoice greatly, and then shout aloud. And that's what we're seeing happening in Jerusalem, isn't it? That's what the throngs, that's what the people are doing. They are rejoicing greatly, and they are shouting aloud aloud. And by the way, you do not hear Jesus condemning them, do you? You don't hear him saying, hey, shh, keep it down. In fact, when the Pharisees tell the people to quiet down, Jesus says to them, if they would be silent, the rocks would cry out. Because this is happening, people. This is happening right now before your eyes. The perfection of the praise of infants, of babies, is being perfected when they are crying out my praise. This is happening, and you're, and, and you're here, you're present, and they didn't understand it. So it's happening that Israel is rejoicing greatly, they're shouting aloud, and this is in fulfillment. And here is why, behold, your king is coming and both John and Matthew are trying to display the kingship, the glory, the majesty, the fulfillment of Jesus in this hour. Fulfilling this text, your king is coming to you. And here he is, Israel, your king. And here is defined in this prophecy he's righteous, he's righteous, and having salvation with him. Only Jesus was righteous, indeed, without degree. He was perfect in righteousness. When the, crowd when the crowd, according to Luke, cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this is implied that it is the Lord's righteousness that will save his people. But notice what the prophecy says The the prophecy doesn't just say, by God's righteousness, he will save them. That is, through it, that is, he is himself righteous. And then he says that he could bring salvation. That he's bringing salvation, not only with him, but that he is their salvation. Since Christ is perfect in his righteousness, coming to his people is the idea he in himself brings salvation to them his salvation is not merely with them he is his people's salvation and this is the way that god's salvation is spoken of over and over and over again in great themes in the old testament their salvation would be the salvation of the lord It's not just that Jesus gives salvation. He is salvation is the idea here. The salvation that comes to God's people comes through God himself visiting his people. Psalm 118 seems to be the height of the halal Psalms. Verse 25 and verse 26 says this, Save us, we pray. Now, that's almost a transliteration of what Hosanna means, which by this time, D.A. Carson says, is just another means, another word of praise to God that they expected that it would be God who saves them. Hosanna means save us. And here it is. Save us, we pray, O Lord. It's the Lord's prerogative to save. You know, your salvation, if you're here this morning, and if you belong to God, it's God's saving prerogative to save you. It's God's prerogative to save you. Nobody else's. And that's what our hope is in, the Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. And then they say in verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is one who would come who would be the fulfillment of their salvation in himself, the king, the righteous one. So then this king is unique in that he is perfect in righteousness, and he is himself the salvation of his people. But notice how this king saves. He is also unique in that he is a humble king. What kind of a king is humble? This is the king prophesied in the Old Testament. And this is something that both Matthew and John key in on explicitly. The Hebrew word can be rendered as one who lacks. The one who is poor. Who is without. The humble, the afflicted even. Here's one who is mounted upon a foal of a donkey who had never been ridden, but that wasn't even his, so to speak. They borrowed him. And this indicates the sort of humility that was in Christ. But it doesn't tell the whole story, does it? It doesn't tell the whole story that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell with him. And this was Jesus's by who He was, this rightly belonged to him. He's the creator of all things we find out in the New Testament. In John 1 and in Colossians 1, everything was made through him. Everything rightly belonged to him. So his humility is not merely that he was poor, but that he gave it up. That he gave up his riches, He gave up his glory. He humbled himself and became obedient to the will of the Father by becoming like us, but not just like us, beneath us, in a sense. This king humbles himself lower than you or I would ever be humbled. But we don't see that yet. In the text, we don't understand that yet in the text. We don't know that yet in the text, and the crowds don't know that, and the Pharisees don't know that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. The crowds didn't know it. The disciples didn't understand it yet. The measure of his humility. We don't see it yet. But it's pointed to in this occasion how deeply he would humble himself this king coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is fulfillment. This is fulfillment of this occasion, this prophecy of Zechariah. This is no doubt a triumphal occasion according to the record that we have. Listen to this. In Jesus' entire lifetime, there's only one week of his life that spans almost 40% of everything we have written about him. And this is one of the occasions that every one of the four records of his life deems is important for us to know. That means it's important. That means it is of utmost importance for us to get it. This is triumph. This is God's triumph. So what's changed? What changed? What, changed that, what brought on the change that all these people surrounding this event didn't understand it, but now the apostles are saying this is fulfillment? I think John gives us such a beautiful glimpse into what changed so explicitly. John 12, 16. His disciples, here it is explicitly, did not understand it says. This is right after the triumphal entry record in John. They did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had indeed been done to him. What does that phrase, when Jesus was glorified, indicate? It indicates that it, this glorification, changed everything. It changed everything. It, it means that what happens here has a triumphal meaning. Regardless of all the imperceptions that was going on, the confusion, the hostility, that this is triumphal. In fact, John says that it was only after Christ was glorified that the disciples remembered that Jesus is was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. That's when they understood that this occasion of Christ's life was indeed triumphal. Jesus' glorification corresponds in John's gospel to his hour and to his being lifted up. Hear how Jesus defines his glorification and his hour, his being lifted up. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's triumph. You hear that? The king who is coming is coming to destroy the ruler of this world and his dominion over it. How is he doing it? Jesus says, now is the time. Now it is. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. And this means in the context, Jews and Greeks alike. The nations will come to me. I will free them from the dominion of Satan, triumphing over him and their sin in the cross, according to the epistles. Now listen, he describes what he's saying here. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. What does it say in John chapter 3? Even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the allusion there is in the first place that Christ would be glorified in his death on the cross when he would be lifted up to die. This this is the baffling mystery of the exaltation of, Of our Messiah. That in his most low point in all of his life, in his deepest humility, in his lowest condescension, he would be exalted there, even there. And through that would come the defeat of our enemy, of our sin would come the peace that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The hour of Christ's glorification was first realized in the cross he bore on Good Friday. But it was subsequently affirmed. Indeed, it was stamped, it's finished, finally. The amen of God was placed upon it in his resurrection And in the sending of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, for as yet the Spirit, or John says this in John 7, 39, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we can surmise here, after Jesus is glorified, the Spirit is given. They understand then, as they look back on this scene, that this was God's triumph, the King coming to Jerusalem in fulfillment of what Zechariah said, the salvation of God, the righteousness of God, the king that he would send in his name, who would bring salvation for his people, was our triumph, was God's triumph. So it was after Christ died, was buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords that the disciples finally understood that this scene in Jerusalem was truly the triumphal entry of the promised, long-awaited King of Israel. And here's what I want us to apply to ourselves. Beloved, from our vantage point, because of the finished work of Christ. We don't look back and wonder at the scene, at the confusion of the people merely lining the streets, spreading out their clothes, the palm branches, the statements of praise and prayers and rejoicings and loud supplications. We don't wonder about them, we join with them. We're not in that state of confusion. The reason why this marks the beginning of Holy Week or this most important week in the life of the most important man is because it teaches us right worship towards Him. This is good that we praise Jesus. Why do we know it? Because we know the end of the week. We don't have to be tossed back and forth. Is he worthy of our worship? What else should bind our conscience to worship? Nothing else in this life is worth worshiping, worth following, worth treasuring like this king. This text calls us to worship. When we read it, our hearts should be saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. The King of Israel, by the grace of God, you and I are in a position to know how this most important of weeks would end in the life of the most important person who still lives. Who still lives. There's no period after his life. It's an ongoing life. He's reigning right now at the right hand of the Father on high, the Bible says. So worship the King. You who belong to Him, worship the King. This has already been done for us. Colossians 1.13 says, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's what Jesus said he was going to do when he's lifted up. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You're already there if you belong to Christ. You're seated with him in heavenly places, Colossians 3 says, because in him we have redemption peace with God the forgiveness of our sins so worship the king but as I was closing I was going to close there yesterday and I want to say something to you who don't have faith in this king who are still confused and are asking questions and and what I want to say to you is I want to Say, believe on this king. God was so gracious to send him in this way. He sent him on a donkey. The king of glory humbled himself so that today is the day of salvation. Today, in the goodness of God, you would be led to repentance. He would not cast off. The mercy, the free grace of God, the salvation, which is not just for a little while, but gives life and life more abundantly, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a time when God's mercy by it, by the giving of His Son in grace and lowliness and humility, He calls sinners to repentance. But it's not just that. That the Bible holds out as a means to call you to repentance the Bible says that there is a time that God has appointed by the one whom he's raised from the dead to judge the world in righteousness today is the time of salvation the day today is the day of grace there is coming a day when Jesus will come again and he will be riding a white horse and it will be a day of triumph over everyone who did not bow the knee while it was the day of mercy. While it was the day of salvation. And the Bible says of that day when he will wet his garment in the blood of everyone who doesn't bow the knee now. Of that day to flee. Flee the wrath of God. Where do you flee? You flee now. You don't flee then. You're not going to get away then. Now is where you flee. Today is the day of your salvation. Christ came to save sinners by the mercy of God. Believe in him and be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your salvation that has won your people to yourself. Not one of us is sinless. Not one of us was righteous like Christ. Not one of us deserves everlasting life in ourselves. But by your mercy, you saved us. By the most important and most uh, Extravagant gift you could ever bestow your son your only son And he was faithful to you in every point never sinned humbling himself even the to the point of the death of the cross and And we are saved by him Uh, We thank you for Christ we worship the king, because his death accomplished our salvation. He was buried and he rose again. You raised him from the death. Death has no dominion over him. And he reigns and he is king. And we worship him because of your grace. But I pray that you would increase this, the outreach, the, the saving arm. Reveal yourself again to sinners. We desperately need your mercy. And I, and I pray that as you've been mercy, merciful to us to save us, that you would continue saving your people out of this sinful world from their sins unto life eternal and the joy of the Lord. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen.